Well, we have started the book of Isaiah, and we are now in the second chapter of 66. So we've got a long ways to go. Could be a year, honestly, before we get through. But that's okay. Not upset by it. Doesn't bother me at all. But I want to read to us Isaiah chapter 2. And we're going to pretty much stay right here. So I would encourage you to keep your Bibles open if you've brought them. And that you would turn to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm reading out of the New International Version. I will also be reading in a little bit out of the message. Um, but I, I want us to, to look. We're not going to do verse by verse by verse. But we're going to, we're going to do chunk by chunk by chunk. Um, this is what Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as a chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to, up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. You, they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and clasp their hands with pagans. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols and they bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks. Hide in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to the holes in the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day... Men will throw away to the rodents and the bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they have made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Before we get looking at the meaning of this or any of that other stuff, I want to give you an understanding. When I was first in the military and I was learning to do public speaking, one of the things they told us was when you get up before a crowd of people, tell them what you're going to tell them. Then tell them. Then tell them what you told them. That's the normal format for public speaking. Is it true? It's true. Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. Tell them what you told them. That's the easiest way to, to draft a speech. 
Well, unfortunately, that's not the easiest way to do sermons, but this morning, I do want to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Okay? First of all, we said this last week, that the book of Isaiah's 66 chapters, it was not a story that starts with chapter 1, verse 1, and runs all the way through to chapter 66, verse whatever. It's not something that's easy to, to sit and read and get the gist of. There's no storyline that follows. There's no characters that you can follow and see their, their arc of their character progression. This is a grouping of prophetic utterances, prophetic words that God gave through his spirit to Isaiah, who then proclaimed them to various kings and to the people. We said last week that scholars believe that chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah are the preface, if you will. In other words, the beginning, the background. The, uh, this, is what it, this is why we wrote this book kind of thing. And that 6 and following is actually the bulk of the, of the storyline for Isaiah. So we're still in this preface thing. Well, now, if you look at this preface and try to understand it, chapter 1 is the first part of three. Chapter two through four is the second part of three, of the preface. And then chapter five is the third part of the preface. There's not time in 20 to 30 minute sermon to do justice to chapters two through four of Isaiah. So what I've had to do is break it down to just chapter two at this point. Next week, we may do three and four. I don't know. But where we're at right now is we're going to look just at the 22 verses of chapter two, which is in this overall understanding of the book. It's the second part of a three part preface before we get into the, the meat and the story here. Um, the other thing you need to understand, as I said, this is a collection of previously spoken or written things from Isaiah. So it may not be in quote-unquote chronological order, but these are the words of Isaiah as uttered by him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, And scholars believe that this particular section, 2 through 4, was actually uh, a, um, I don't know how to say it, like a poster on the wall. In other words, a public poster for people to read, a public proclamation. Or maybe it was a letter sent to that was then put on the wall for everyone to read. Okay, So as we're looking at chapter 2, understand that this particular section, uh, 2 through 4 actually, was, this, was for public speaking, public uh, access. It wasn't for one individual, it was for everyone to see. And again, it's specifically addressed to Judah and Jerusalem. And we see that in verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And this first three, I mean, first four verses, start again. Verses 2, 3, and 4 of Isaiah chapter 2. 2, 3, and 4 of Isaiah chapter 2. In the last days, actually, before we do this, would somebody please quickly turn to Micah chapter 4. Somebody who has... Knows their Bible backwards, forwards, inside and out. Micah's farther back in the Old Testament. It's one of the last books in the Old Testament. Look it up in your table of contents. It's easy. Micah chapter 4. You got it? Okay, just have, have it ready. Okay? What version of the Bible are you looking at, Mary? Uh, New International. So, I'm in New International. You're in New International. I'm going to read one word... You read one word. 
I'm going to read one word, you read the next word. Okay, so it's like we're tag teaming, only I'm reading out of Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, and she's reading Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Okay, I'll start. In last the uh oh, what is it? The mountain? No. Let me let me look at yours. Oh, you're in Malachi. That's why. No, that's cool. That's okay. I was like, don't you're messing this whole thing up. Who's got Micah? Who's got Micah open real quick? No, that's okay. Joyce. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. mountains. Oh, sorry. It will be raised above the hills and all peoples nations will stream to it. Many nations will and Say. let uh, excuse me come and go oh come let us go yeah come let us go up to the mountain of the lord to the house of the god of jacob he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. the word, I'm sorry, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And actually, oh, he, sorry, I didn't finish. He will judge the people and people settle dispute for Peoples. Far? I'm sorry, they? Okay. Yeah, slightly different. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take a sword against nation, nor will they train. War. War. Anymore. Okay. Somebody copied off of somebody. <laughs> and scholars haven't a clue who did what. Okay? Obviously the Holy Spirit felt like those words were very important and wanted them spoken twice. Okay? Now the reality is this. Okay? Either Micah read Isaiah's and went, cool, I want to use that. Or Isaiah read Micah's and went, cool, I want to use that. Or someone else wrote it and both guys went, oh, that's cool, I want to use that. Who cares? It's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was appropriate to what they were saying. But you need to understand that, okay, as you're reading these two different things. That, that It wasn't that somebody copied off the other. It was that the Spirit said, I want these included in your words, okay? Number two. Another thing that we need to look at. Look at verse 19 of Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 21 of Isaiah chapter 2. 19 and 21. I'm reading again NIV. 
It says, Men will flee to caverns in the rocks and to holes in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. 21 says, They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his mighty when he rises to shake the earth. Now, turn to Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Amos, A-M-O-S, chapter 1, verse 1. And then somebody else turn to Zechariah 14.5. Zechariah 14.5. Amos 1.1. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, when he saw coming, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah, the king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Listen to that again. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was king of Judah. Zechariah 14.5. Zechariah 14.5 says, You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Isaiah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. So apparently Isaiah in chapter 2 verses 19 and 21 is talking about this huge cataclysmic earthquake that's referenced in Amos and Zechariah. And apparently it was such an incredible, massive, huge earthquake that literally people ran for the hills trying to get into caves to protect themselves because they thought the earth was falling apart. That's how horrible this event was. Liken it in our own time to the images you saw of people running through the streets of New York while the Twin Towers were collapsing. Running for their lives trying to escape the destruction and the horror, and they were in a freak-out panic. Okay? Now, days later, it wasn't such a big deal. Oh, I got through that. But when they were in the midst of it, oh my goodness! And they were screaming and hollering and freaking out, and that's what Isaiah is referring back to He's talking about, remember that horrible time when you thought the world was falling apart and you were running for your lives, scared out of your mind because you thought God was bringing the world to an end? Well, think about that, folks. And then he talks about it in verse 17, 19 and 20. He says, men will flee to the caves and rocks and the holes of the ground from the dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. And in that day, they will throw away to the rodents and their bats their idols of silver and idols of gold. Because it's like, oh my God, we've been worshiping the wrong God. Okay? We haven't been living the worst. Oh Jesus, if you'll please forgive me, I will never, ever, never, never, never again. Please just don't let me die right this moment. Please! It's exactly what's going on here. Now, let's look at... (coughs) Look at verse um, 6 through 9 of chapter 2. You have abandoned your people. Isaiah talking to God. God, you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines. What is divination? 
Witchcraft. They practice witchcraft from, like the Philistines, their enemies. They clasp hands with pagans. Clasping hands with pagans. Entering into agreements. Forming alliances. There's more to the history that I could talk about. We don't have time this morning. Um, their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. What is that? They're rich. They've amassed great wealth. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. What is that? Horses and chariots in Isaiah's time were the same as strikers and tanks and missiles in our time. Okay? This was a great army, a great mass of weapons of war. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So men will be brought low and humbled. Do not forgive them. Isaiah is speaking to God. Now, some scholars want to soften that a little bit. And they say, well, it's because they've been so bad that you can't even, even think about possibly forgiving them. Mm, what I read here, as the translators did it, was... You, God, verse 6, have abandoned your people. And then verse 9, do not forgive them. Don't relent. They don't deserve it. That's what I hear Isaiah saying. Do I think God did this? Not forgive them? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I promise. I promise. There is one last thing that I want to do. Before we get into the why are we here listening to all this this morning. And that's, I want to read to you out of the message translation. And we're going to be reading verses 10 to 16 or 17. So Isaiah chapter 2, verse 10 to about 17 out of the message. Head for the hills. Hide in the caves from the terror of God, from his dazzling presence. People with a big head are headed for a fall. Pretentious egos brought down a peg. It's God alone at front and center on the day we're talking about. The day that God of the angel armies is matched against all big talking rivals, against all swaggering big names. Against all giant sequoias, hugely towering. Against the expansive chestnut. Against Kilimanjaro, Annapurna, against the ranges of Alps and Andes, against every soaring skyscraper, against all proud obelisks and statues, against ocean-going luxury liners, against elegant three-masted schooners, the swelled big heads are going to be punctured bladders, the pretentious egos brought down to earth, leaving God alone at front and center on the day we're talking about. I love the way Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, draft or crafted the words. He basically took verses 10 through 17 there and just put them in language that people would relate to today. Kilimanjaro is the largest, the tallest mountain on African continent. We could have said Denali and it would have been the same thing. Um, talking about luxury liners and Three-masted schooners and talking about everything huge and great. The chestnut is this huge, huge tree. The sequoias, the redwoods that, that are in the southern... And everything that you can think of that is incredibly huge or large or massive or powerful. All of it. Nothing. 
when it's finally the day of the Lord. God and God alone is going to be what everyone falls down before. Nothing else. So what is all of this? Why in the world did God, the Holy Spirit, impress Isaiah to do all of this? To say these words. Well, first of all, again, remembering this is a preface. This is a, the, the beginnings of the story of the, 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 the ministry of Isaiah. Isaiah is talking about in first, the first five verses of chapters two about what it's going to be like. There's going to come a day in the last days, though. In the last days, there's going to be a time when everyone is going to turn to God. Everyone is going to come up to the mountain of God, Zion. Everyone is going to fall before him and honor him. It literally says, nations will no longer rise up against nations. They will no longer battle. They will no longer um, train for war. They're even going to take all their weapons of war and just turn them into something pleasant and peaceful. That's what it's going to be. The problem is, we ain't there today. And the reason we're not there today is because, look, verse 6 and following the way these people are living their lives, they don't deserve God's grace or God's love or God's mercy or God's forgiveness. They have been, they were specifically set apart. The nation of Israel, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, they were specifically set apart by God to be the, to the people through whom everyone else on the face of the earth would be blessed. And look what they've done. They've turned their backs on God. And the reality is, Isaiah is saying, through the inspiration of the Spirit, there is going to come a time, there's going to come a day of reckoning where these people understand and realize that all of their mightiness, all of their own building themselves up, all of their trying to be, to be great in the world's eyes and forming alliances and being totally secure is going to fall apart. Every foundation that they set for themselves is going to go away and the only thing left will be God alone and they will have to then turn to him. And at that point, when everyone on the face of the earth finally turns to God, that's when there will be peace. That's when there will be good living. That's when it will be the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. Now, <coughs> excuse me, why in the world would God want us to look at this today? There's, there's a couple thoughts that came across while one of them that I was while I was reading <clears throat> this chap this particular um, quote just gripped me. A guy named uh, Motyer, and I can't tell you what his first name is. I don't remember. But what's really cool, I hadn't read his commentary until this morning because I have like eight or nine books that I'm trying to read, and I just didn't have time to get through all of them. And I woke up this morning, and literally the Holy Spirit said, "Read Motyer." Why read Matyar? <sighs> okay. So I took the time to read Matyar. Oh, my word. This is what it says. If the world is ever to say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. The people, the Lord's people must heed the call to walk in the light. The first requirement in evangelism is to have a church that's worth joining. Let me restate that. If the world is ever to say, come, let us go up, the Lord's people must heed the call to come, let us walk. The first requirement in evangelism is to have a church that's worth joining. Wow. 
God, am I walking in the light in such a way that people would find the ministry that I'm leading worth joining? God, when the day comes and your glory is shown and your power is shown and you literally shake everything and the foundations start shaking and the world crumbles down and there's nothing left standing except God, what of my life will still be left standing? Is my world built on the foundation of the word of God? Is my superstructure of my life totally totally saturated with the power and presence of God? Is every aspect of my life somehow connected to God in a way that brings glory to Him and is righteous and pure and holy in His sight? Because if it's not, then I have just as much danger of the words that were declared over this nation of Judah. If I'm not living in such a way that God would not, I mean, that, that God would say, that's, foul, that's vile, that's foul, it's not part of what I want from, from you, and literally have the words, do not forgive, be spoken over my life. You see, and this is trying to answer the question that you had, does God really do that? <clears throat> God indeed is a loving God. I have no question about that. God has poured out grace upon grace. It says in the first, first John that God lavishes his love out on us. That means he wastefully pours out his love on us. When it's not necessary, he still pours out his love on us. I believe that. He is a loving God. But he is also a holy God. He is also a just God. He is also God. It is not my place to tell him how I'm supposed to live my life. I mean, how, how he's supposed to bless my life. It was kind of, I don't remember who said it. Oh, it was Elsie. When you said what you said this morning, I was laughing because I was like, shh, that's exactly it. Who am I to say, I'm paying for this, God, so bless me. Because yeah. that's exactly the mindset of some people when they get involved with church and God. Right. Come on, I've done everything right. Why do you let this crap in my life? Right? Instead of saying, he's God and I am not and I will accept his plan for me and his purposes for me. And literally, like, like we talked last week, Stonewall Jackson sitting there on a horse with a sword going forward, not dodging bullets. People say, well, how in the world could you do that stoically not dodging bullets? He said, because God's in charge of my life. And if the bullet is meant to hit me, it's going to hit me. And if it's not meant to hit me, it's not going to hit me. And it doesn't do me any good to dodge. Okay. That's a scary thought to me. But if I truly believe that God is God and he's in charge and I trust my life to him, shouldn't I just sit there and let things happen because... God's not going to bring anything into my life that he doesn't see that can work towards my good. Now, that doesn't mean things aren't bad coming into my life. It doesn't mean that there'll be never anything wrong in my life. It means that God will bring about good as a result because he sees the end from the beginning and everything in between and he knows why he allows it. There's a reason for it. And the reason he allowed all of the nation of Israel and then Judah and Jerusalem to be overwhelmed by Assyria and Babylon back in the day of Isaiah was because they needed to be purged and cleansed of their filth. 
There was a remnant from the time all the way through that didn't let go of God and held on to God. But the ones that refused, the ones that were shaking their fists in God's face, those were the ones that needed to be purged from the nation. There had to be a holy remnant that was available to bring about God's plan of salvation. Because back in Genesis, it said, Abraham, through your family, I am going to bless all of the nations of the earth through the seed that comes from you, Abraham. And that seed went from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and Jacob down to Judah and Judah down to David and David down to Jesus. The only hope for the world, the light of the world is Jesus. The only means of forgiveness of sin and cleansing and pardon is Jesus. And it is all through this prophetic utterance that God gave at the very beginning. The seed of this woman will crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis, all the way through to the end in Revelation where we see it actually happening. And we get to be part of this. But there's a, like I said last week, there's a big if. God says, I offer to you. God says, I'm not going to require you to be robots. You can choose to do or you can choose to walk, whichever you choose. But understand there's consequences. And what we see here is the consequences of poor choices. So the answer that I give to myself when I say, why should I read this, is that warning. Walk in the light. Verse 22 says, stop trusting in man. Who has but a breath in his nostrils? And if you look at Isaiah, you don't have to turn, I'll turn. But if you turn to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. Excuse me. Isaiah 42, verse 5. This is what the Lord God says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. You see, stop trusting in man, Isaiah 22, 22 says, who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Yeah, what account is man? God's the one that gave him that breath. God's the one that gave him that life. God's the one that gave him that skill. So if you're going to trust in anyone or anything, it should be God and God alone. So go back to Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, and that's why we should read this, and that's what we should take away from us this week. Walk in the light of the Lord. End of discussion.